Have you ever heard it said that uh, ignorance is bliss? Or uh, what you don't know can't hurt you? You know that's stupid, right? That's not true. And especially when you're talking about God. What you don't know can and will hurt you. Now, you know, we see today in this chapter, David as the king of Israel, and he's going to accomplish things that are milestones in the history of the world. The things he is doing in this chapter 3,000 years ago affect our lives today. But then we also see at the same time a strange ignorance of God that will also affect him. It's got the seeds of destruction in it. And the point is, ignorance of the word of God is not bliss, it is weakness. So I'm reading in chapter five here of 2 Samuel. And it says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So here we see the fulfillment of God's word to David as he was a little boy. And the prophet Samuel searches him out and says to seven of his brothers, you're not the one, you're not the one, you're not the one. You got any more sons? Oh yeah, well, we got the little guy, but he's out there with the sheep. We'll get him in here. This is the one. In the midst of all of his brothers, Samuel the prophet anoints him with oil and says, thus says the Lord, I am anointing you king over my people Israel. And what an amazing thing, what an amazing journey we have seen as God fulfills his word. And it looks like it is never going to happen. There is every kind of opposition to God's word. It just looks like, what was that? Was I dreaming? Whose idea was this? And the answer is, it's God's idea. And God is the one who puts it together in God's timing. And now, here comes all the leaders of Israel to David. And they want David to be their king. There is no middleman, no power broker like Abner to set them all up. You guys get into line. Okay, here they are, David. Rule. Nothing. Because Abner's gone. And any difficulty or problem, it's gone. They just come to David. And they've got three reasons why they want David to be king over them. And the first one, right there in uh, verse one, it says, we're your bone and your flesh, which means we are related to you. But you notice how they put it. It's not, David, you're 
our bone, our flesh, so we want you to rule over us. They say, would you please rule over us because we are related to you. Do you get the difference there? Please, David. They emphasize the fact that David is special and called by God and they want him to rule over them. They want to be bound to him. The second reason is that David is the one who led Israel in and out. That is, in a military sense. Even while he was a young man. Even while Saul was king, David was leading Israel's armies to victory. And that's the job of a king. And they're acknowledging David was doing the job of a king, leading his people into battle with victory. They knew David when he was a little kid and he killed a giant. Because remember, they, they even made up a little jingle about that. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And that one got around. I mean, the Philistines were humming that one. They said, isn't this David? You know, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. You're right. It's the guy in the song. Let's kill him. So Israel knew that David was gifted as a commander. They also knew the word of the Lord to David. This is the third reason. The Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler. So they, they knew this about David. So here's three reasons why David ought to be king. Don't you think it's weird that Israel did not make David king for seven years and six months, knowing this stuff. But they did. They just sort of, they sort of let Abner say, no, Ishbosheth is going to be king. He's the son of Saul, we're going to make him king. They said, okay. Even though they know everything about David, the word of the Lord, his ability, okay, we're just going to go off and not do what we know is the word of the Lord. So, what was the result of not doing what they knew was the word of God? Nothing. Nothing for seven and a half years. At a civil war where people are getting killed, what kind of progress are they making? Nothing. In fact, they got weaker and weaker and the house of David became stronger and stronger. So, where was God in all that? He wasn't blessing Israel. He was blessing Judah. So, this is a principle. When you know the word of God and you don't act on it, you're wasting your time your energy, your life, your opportunities. And you maybe don't want to do the word of God because it's kind of scary. And you don't like to be scared. You'd rather be comfortable and not threatened. We were hearing about that, you know, going door to door, kind of saying, right here, just sock me right here. That's what you feel like. Or here, if you like it here, if that's better, that's cool. Right here. You think, I'm signing up for this? But, you know, if you don't do it, then you're missing out. You're actually missing out on the coolness of God working through you. So, you know, you can do what you want. Nobody's making anybody do anything, but if you know what God wants you to do and you don't do it, you're wasting your time. And life is a complete waste apart from God. Does everybody get that? That's what Israel was doing for seven and a half years. 
But good for them. They got the mow together. Let's go to David. Let's do this. And you know what happens now is a golden age for Israel. And they get to be a part of it because they finally did it. They said, okay, David. So look at what eternally significant things happen. Verse six. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David saying, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. So David went on and became great and the Lord of God of hosts was with him. So, David chooses a capital for himself. When Saul was king, his capital was Gibeah. That's in the area allotted to Benjamin. That's his tribe. So that makes sense, doesn't it? David chooses a different city. Jerusalem is right on the border of Benjamin, but it's right on the border of Judah. And so he's really not pulling things away from the tribe of Benjamin. He wants to include them. He doesn't want to exclude anybody. But at the same time, this city doesn't belong to Judah. It belongs to the Jebusites. And you say, well, who are those guys? They were living in Canaan, the promised land, when Israel first came in some 490 years before. And God gave Israel a command, says you have to wipe these guys out, all of them, because they're completely corrupt and if you don't wipe them out, they will wipe you out. You will learn to worship their gods, you will corrupt your lives, and the land will vomit you out. So it was God that told them, you have to do this. And if you look back in the book of Judges, every place where Israel did not obey God, these peoples remained and they became a snare to Israel. They taught Israel how to worship other gods. And every time they worshiped other gods, Israel would destroy their lives without fail. So these guys here in Jerusalem shouldn't ought to be there at all. So what David is doing is obeying God and leading the entire nation to obey God and say, this land is what God gives to us and we're going to retain it. And to do that, we have to obey God and everything in this land must serve God. That's a principle. You can't have little partitions. This is God's and this belongs to the devil. Why? Because it's fun. Well, this fun thing is going to corrupt your life and destroy your life. So everything that will not serve Jesus must go. And in this, it is kill or be killed. You cannot retain anything that will not obey Jesus and prosper. You will be destroyed. So David is making a statement here. And he says, while I am king, 
Everything in Israel must serve the Lord. And see, these guys got to go. Well, you notice that they say, well, you're not going to get in here. Hey, the blind and the lame are going to repel you guys. And the next thing they know is they're dead. What? Because they think, oh, David can't get us. And that's kind of cool when you think about anything in your life that you can't get rid of that won't serve Jesus. And it says, you're not going to get rid of me. I'm here to stay. Well, when Jesus comes in, that thing, whatever it is, has to go. And it will go. You think, well, I can't get rid of it. No, you can't. But Jesus can. That's the gospel. So they think, well, we're going to put the blind and the lame on the walls to fix you, Israelites, you dopes. And the next thing they know, the Jebusites don't control Jerusalem anymore. (laughs) That's it. It's over. So... David now has a new capital. And you know, the long-term results of this is that he is going to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to Jerusalem. And this city, Jerusalem, will then become the dwelling place of God forever. Now, he has dwelt or put his presence in other places in Israel. But This decision to bring the Ark of the Lord to Jerusalem means that God is going to cause his presence to dwell in Jerusalem forever. And he's not going to put his Messiah in any other place. Psalm 2 says, I will put my anointed king, my Messiah, on my holy hill of Zion. Now, that's one of the most unpolitically correct decisions you can make nowadays. And there is a host of nations that say, we don't want that. Most of the United Nations do not want uh, Israel to possess the Temple Mount or Jerusalem. They say, let's make it an international city. Let's not let Israel have it. And God says, you know what? I am going to put my holy king on my holy hill of Zion. He's going to rule the world. So think about this. When God's eternal city comes out of heaven to come down to the planet, what is it? The holy city of New York. Just checking to see if you're listening. Nope. That is the holy city of Jerusalem. So here's David making a move that has an effect for all eternity. That's amazing. So, Jebusites notwithstanding, David now has a capital. And then... David realizes afresh that God is blessing him for a greater reason than just himself. Look at verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons. And they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. All right, now this is kind of a, kind of a little thing in a way, but it's big. That is, David is becoming greater and greater in power and in influence, and Hiram, king of Tyre, decides to do a little kingly thing. And he does it in a way that recognizes David is in the same club. Do you get it? 
Hiram's not going to send a build your palace kit to just anybody. But here comes the shipment, sort of like Amazon, right? And you open up the cardboard box, and there's stonemasons, carpenters, cedar trees, everything you need for a build your palace kit. And here's what it looks like when you get done. Wow! Now, guaranteed, Saul never lived in a palace like that. David has never lived in a palace like that. Where did David live? In the caves. Nothing architectural there, folks. And now it's a palace. And these guys are ching, ching, ching. <laughs> Making him a palace. When he gets done, it's like, wow, this is some place and the doors close really nice and it's, this is yeah it says mercedes benz there on the right on the doorpost cool this is perk type stuff right you live in your little mud hut here and the king is going to live in the old palace here now, you know, that is sending a little message to David that you're there. I mean, as, as high as a king can get, you're there. And this is what David is realizing. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. Well, didn't he know that already? Didn't he get anointed? Hasn't he been king? But something about this house and realizing, whoa, this is a palace. I have arrived. Arrived where? To do what? And it says, he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. See, David does not say, man, I'm in the big time. This is so cool. I'm going to get me a chariot that matches the house. Something with fins on it, you know. But he says, you know, God put me here for a reason. I am king in order to shepherd God's people. Now that doesn't follow naturally from here's your Mercedes-Benz palace. You and I would say, well, I gotta dig me a swimming pool to go with it. I mean, that's the only thing missing. But David says, I really am king so that I can take care of God's people. And every step I've ever taken has brought me to this point. So again, here's a principle that God blesses, but the blessing does not stop with one person. But that blessing is meant to go further to other people. This is the covenant that God made with Abraham. It says, I will bless you, I will make you a blessing, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So does God bless Abraham? Yes. And especially he gives him a son. But then that blessing is meant to go further and further and further. And in fact, we here in this room are experiencing the blessing that God gave to Abraham. So it wasn't that God blessed Abraham so that Abraham could go, wow, I've got flocks and I've got a really cool tent. Everything is cool. I've made it. I'm done. David doesn't have this palace and say, whoa, I'm going to get me some paintings. But he says, God has put me here so that I can benefit, benefit others.
So, this is why God blesses you. Did you know that? In every way that God blesses you, that is meant to go out to other people. And you don't think, whoa, if I bless anybody else, that means I have less for me. Because it doesn't work that way. See, what happens is, you receive that blessing, and it goes out, but there's always more where that came from. And instead of you being a cup, you become more like a stream. And it passes through you to others. Like Greg was talking about this morning. The one who believes in Jesus out of his innermost being will gush rivers of living water. And that's for everybody else. And there's more where that came from. So that's what David is realizing. So we don't want to say, hey, God's blessing me. I'm doing great. The end. But then we think, well, what about everybody around me? What about my family? What about my work colleagues? What about the people I run into? What about them? And then we can say, okay, God, all this you've given me, now let it go out. Now bless other people through me. That's where the real blessing is. Did you know that? Because it's more blessed to give than receive. And you find that out every time. And you think to yourself, what a dope I am. I could be doing this all the time. Just a little suggestion there. So this means that God is working in David. And he's getting it. And he's thinking, I am a king with a purpose. So that's why it's strange that we read that David took more wives and concubines. Look at this scripture. Verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. I'm not going to get one of them right, okay? But we're going to read them anyway. Shammah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nephag, Japhia, Elishima, Eliada, and poor Eliphalet. What kind of a name is that? Oh well, he's probably a handsome guy. Okay, now look. David already had seven wives. Guys, what do you think? Was that enough? <laughs> little straw poll here. But no, he's got to marry more. He must have somebody really big to keep them all in line. You know, it's a lot of, but it's wrong. He's not only marrying wives, but he's marrying concubines. A secondary, lower status wife who's there to bear children and to have sex with. Now this is a, uh, a privilege that kings get to have. We even read of Saul having a concubine. And this is accepted. Kings are different from us. They get to do things that we don't get to do. It's out there in the world. But that's not what God says. In Deuteronomy 17, and this is written in the time of Moses, it says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, 
since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Now that's what it says. And we're faced with a choice. Did David know about this or didn't he? Now if he didn't know about this, well, if he did know about it, then he's acting deliberately against the word of God. I don't think that fits right here. He's not at that place, heart of heart, all right? Now, the possibility is he might think, well, it applies to everybody else, but not to me. Because some people think that. They read the Bible and they read something that they shouldn't do, that they're doing, and they say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Why? Just because it doesn't apply to me. I don't want to do it. <laughs> well, some people read the Bible that way. That doesn't work. It does apply. So, David evidently did not know this part of the word of God. And it's possible because we'll see in the next chapter, he did not know the right way to move the ark. And what he did not know does hurt him. So, evidently, David is not familiar with this part of the word of God. It's kind of a hole in his knowledge and experience with God. That's all we can assume here. Because he's doing the very thing that God says, don't do. And he cannot escape the consequences. What he doesn't know about the word of God is going to cause him grief and suffering, heartache, loss. It is not good what David is doing here. But then God also knows what's going on here. And it's not a situation of let us do good or let us do evil that good may come. You know that uh, false proverb that says it's easier to get forgiveness than permission? It doesn't work like that. You can take nails and a nice piece of furniture and you can pound nails if you want into your furniture. And then you can pull those nails out. But it does leave a nail hole, doesn't it? And we can get forgiveness for our sins, but it leaves nail holes. And in my opinion, the fewer nail holes in your life, the better. Don't go into battle hoping to get shot very few times. You want to go in and not get shot at all. So, this is not let us do evil that good may come. This is God working with human failure and weakness and ignorance and working good out of it. Because you see two things that are good here. You notice that one of David's sons born in Jerusalem is Solomon. Terrible situation there and we're going to see that in chapters to come and yet God is going to use Solomon to bless the whole nation of Israel and you also notice that one of his sons born there is Nathan 
Nathan. And what's important about him is that God is going to bless him so that the line of the Messiah comes through Nathan, a son born later of a wife that David married later, and God chooses him. So in the midst of human weakness and failure, God is still working to establish his purposes to bless. Does everybody get that? And the last part of this chapter is David declares his independence from the Philistines. Verse 17. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Peretzim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal Peretzim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so. And the Lord command, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. So here's the situation. The Philistines did not care when David was with them serving Achish, king of Gath, except they didn't want him in the big, big battle with Israel because they didn't trust him. But David wants to work with the Philistines, no big deal. And then after Saul is dead, when Judah anoints David king of Judah, Philistines don't care because Ishbosheth is king over Israel and they're having a civil war. And the Philistines say, well, let them beat each other up. Who cares? No skin off our nose. But now David is king over all Israel united Israel, and that is a situation because a united Israel could resist the Philistines, could fight back and even conquer the Philistines, and they're not having that. So now they say, we got to take care of this, and they want to nip this in the bud. And David knows that this is happening. The Philistines are lining up to attack in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquires. And the Lord says, go out there. You're going to win. And David just plows them up. It's like the dam bust. And all this flood water just sweeps away anything before it. And so it's like the breakthrough of water. And you notice the Philistines left their idols there. They were in such a hurry to flee for their lives that they leave their gods behind. They could not help them. And it says in 1 Chronicles that David and his men took them and burned them. So the Philistines say, we're going to try this again. And they do the very same thing that they did before probably with surprises. They say, well, David tries that, you know, frontal attack thing. We're going to shred him. So they're waiting there. And David says, okay, what do I do? And God says, don't go out the front way. Go around the back. And when you get the signal, that means I've struck him in the front. So 
There's all the Philistines there going, boy, are we going to get them this time? And we're going to slice them to shreds. And God says, do it now. And David plows into them from the rear. Like, what? And this time, the defeat is so bad that they recover miles and miles and miles of territory from the Philistines. So, God is using David even though David is not perfect. Does everybody get that? Does David have all of his theological ducks lined up? No, he's got gaps in his knowledge. And you know, if you wait until you know everything before you say to God, I will serve you, you'll never serve God. There are gaps in our knowledge. We don't know everything. I don't know everything. Would you believe that? I'm not perfect. And I guess that's part of the fear of saying, I want God to use me, is I'm not perfect. And I'm going to get killed because I'm not perfect. They're going to ask me the question I cannot answer. And then I will spontaneously explode. (laughs) That's what you get for trying to serve God. Let that be a lesson to all of you. Just stick to business. But you know, God uses people who have flaws. I'm one of them. I make mistakes. I have gaps in my knowledge. I don't trust God like real pastors do. I'm just me. So, (laughs) speak, Lord, thy servant is listening. That's what I thought too. (laughs) Now look, if you wait till you're perfect, you're not going to have any fun. Because it's really fun to realize that God enabled you to be more than you have any right to be. And there have been times when I've been witnessing witnessing to somebody and it's like all the answers are there. All the scriptures are there. Everything's there. And I'm not freaked out. And it's fun. And it makes you go, okay, bring on the next one. I'll go 15 rounds. This is great. (laughs) Don't you feel like that? You bet. And see, this this is the wonderful thing of saying, God, I'm not perfect. Use me anyway. And he does. So if you say, I gotta be perfect before I can serve God, well, have a nice life watching Netflix. Seen it all. What a dumb life. Instead, you say, okay, God, here I am. Flaws and everything. Why don't you use me anyway? And then he will. All right. And then don't think you have to be like anybody else. You think, well, I'm not naturally funny. Well, that doesn't matter. And I had somebody tell me yesterday, well, I can't play a guitar, so. I go, you don't have to play a guitar. Who cares? You can pray and say, you know what, God? Here I am. Why don't you show me how I'm supposed to serve you? My way that's not anybody else's way. And he'll do it. But then on the other hand, think about this. You want to grow in knowledge. 
You want to know God. It's not good to be without knowledge. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance about God is weakness. You don't need that. Because see, David is a prime example of this. Every word of God is significant. He doesn't say, oh, well, I'm going to trip out and just be real insignificant here. You don't have to pay attention to me. Moses said, this is not an idle word. Indeed, it is your very life. Every word of God counts. So, you want to know the word of God. You want to read it. You want to meditate in it. You want to know God. Everything you know is going to help you, and everything you don't know is not going to help. But then, look at Israel. They knew the word of God, and they didn't do it. What if you're in that situation? You know what you're supposed to do and you're not doing it. You know what it feels like? Complete inertia. You are dead in the water. You're not going anywhere and you're not having any fun because you can't break out of it. You're just like a spiritual zombie. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a, it's a really awful situation to be in to think I know what I ought to be doing and I can't do it. And you almost get angry at God for telling you to do something and you can't do it. Turns out, that everything God tells us we can't do. And the only way to do it is with Him. Like, if you could do anything that God is telling you to do, then Jesus didn't have to die for you. Do you get that? So, our life is about saying, I don't want to do this, I can't do this. Will you please do it in me? That's how you live with God. So you know what you need to do. Everybody here, I would think, knows one thing at least. I ought to be doing that and I'm not doing that. That's either because you can't do it or you don't want to. And usually it's both. So you say, okay, God, I'm being honest with you. I have no heart to do this. I don't care about this, and I don't want to. And that's not good. And I can't. So will you help me? Will you do that? And then you find out that God will help you in every area of your life. Big, small, important, and unimportant. That was the position we came to on Thursday night when I'm hanging out with some people and we're going through a book on how do you follow Jesus. And I'll take anybody through that book, so that's an advertisement. But the scripture we were working on was... I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the question was, what things do you do that you cannot do without Jesus? And the cheater answer is everything. My life, period. So, I'm right now, myself, I'm meditating on Psalm 146, verse 5 where it says, happy is he who has the God of Jacob 
for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. I'm just thinking about that. Because that's what you do. If you want to see God work in your life, you get your, his word in you and you think about it, and that's where God's going to meet you. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. That's fabulous. And that's for you. Let's pray. I'm just thinking, Heavenly Father, how Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches of the glory of the knowledge of God. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And we get to know you that knowledge to know you that is eternal life and we're so thankful that we get to know you that we're not playing church but that you come and you live in us by your Holy Spirit and you help us. And we're so thankful for that. And for anybody who has not received Jesus, you need to. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would open up every heart, every ear, every eye to receive you. And then, Lord, we want to pray for those situations in our life that are like the Jebusites and just say, we're not going to move, we're not going to budge. And we pray that you would deal with these things and resolve these situations. Move in. Take over. And then we pray that you would help us as we do everything. We praise you for your help. We commit ourselves to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.